Hello, and welcome to the Two Real Cinema Club. I'm James Rosica. And I am Andres Larente. And at the Two Real Cinema Club, we watch a couple of movies, usually one old and one new, and we try to make some connections between the two. And this week we're going to discuss, um, in a moment, uh, what is it called? The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. Did I get that right, Jimmy? You did, you did that. You did get the right. It feels like it should be the unbearable weight of Nick Cage. I think they really missed a trick not putting his name at the title. Probably. But yeah, that's it. Yep. We're a film in which Nick Cage plays Nick Cage, and we are going to be uh, comparing and contrasting that to uh, Being John Malkovich from 1999, in which John Malkovich at times seems to be playing John Malkovich. So we've got a theme already. I don't want to give away too much more than that. Um, I would like to say that I've had news, Jimmy, from um, both... I should say both our listeners. No, I should say both of our audiences <laughs> no. in the United Whoa. States and abroad. Um, All right. And the verdict is good. People are enjoying uh, the programming. Uh, they say about uh, us that uh, it's a very good thing. Well, my American friends here saying it's a very good thing that you're on the program with your sense of humor and your beautiful, smooth British accent. <laughs> See, it only sounds beautiful and smooth in America. In Britain, it sounds very pedestrian. Oh, well, my English friend says it's very good that I have a partner who's very smooth comic with a British accent. So, <laughs> uh, I'm available for voiceover. So, <laughs> It's probably worth saying we're, we are now denizens of uh, the Muskiverse now. We are, we are now slaves of Elon Musk. We're on uh, Twitter at... Um, to Real Cine Club. We're on Instagram at To Real Cinema Club. Um, and we're on uh, YouTube as well at uh, something like YMKVVGGH914. <laughs> but but I'm sure if you just search for us on YouTube, you will find us. Um, so, yeah, we're bursting out all over the internet. Um, so uh, thanks. Thank, uh, thanks for the feedback. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy yeah, the show, absolutely. tell your friends. If you don't, uh, tell your friends anyway. Yeah. Give us positive reviews or... More honest reviews if you must, but uh, give us some stars. Make sure that uh, people are aware of what we're doing, and please uh, share your insights with us. Do we have a way to, for listeners to contact us yet, or are we a little bit far yeah, behind? We do, actually, yes. We are um, to Real Cinema Club at Gmail, so people can even email us directly, um, or you, can, or you can, can tweet us. I feel like that's going to turn into Musk us, isn't it? You can Elon us oh, at, at to Real Cine Club. <sighs> Or you can insta us as well, Musk. so people so people can get hold of us somehow. Ooh, yeah. Musk us I'm trying my terrible. hardest not to sound like an old man here, but it's yeah. not working. <laughs> so 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 this this week we both went to see um, unbearable weight of massive talent. Yeah. Uh, for people who haven't seen it or haven't seen the trailer, what's it about? Oh boy. Well, I saw the trailer. I think this was the problem. I saw the trailer and I saw immense potential. I thought this was great. Nick Cage doing the Nick Cage thing. Um, and acting again. I had seen Nick Cage at the end of the summer in a film called Pig. I don't know if you've seen, seen that, that or not. We haven't talked about that. I haven't. Um, which, for the most part, except for one sort of just ridiculous and gratuitously violent scene in the middle that makes no advance of the storyline, um, it was a pretty good film. I enjoyed it. It was just this one silly moment, but um, it seemed like he was acting again. I just think Nick Cage is not really... Living up to his potential. I, I remember Nick Cage when I was oof, teenager, early 20s, with films like, um, it's called Racing with the Moon and Birdie. He just had some fantastic roles early on. And then somewhere, maybe late 90s, I don't know, when he started doing those, um, ugh, was it the American Treasure films? What was that called? Oh, yeah, National Treasure. National yeah. Treasure, sorry. Those films. And then there was another one with a motorcycle dude. He was on fire as he... Oh, drove around the world. That, that's not Drive Angry, is it? That's that Death Ride. Uh, I don't know. That's, yeah. that's, that's like an early proto-Marvel film, isn't it? I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And then I, I feel like he just kind of stopped acting. <laughs> Started cashing the checks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Started counting the dollars. So he's done very well for himself. Um, but this film uh, just came out, so I guess 2022. Um, a film by Tom Gormican, director, and he co-wrote with uh, Kevin Etten. And well, I think uh, it was a Letterman writer. I had to look him up. So, oh. he, so he kind of he uh, got his start on Letterman, and then uh, was like a, a writer and producer on Desperate Housewives. Okay, so that's his background. Interesting. And this this film doesn't work. I'm going to say that this film doesn't work without Charlie Kaufman to a certain extent because they sort of steal a character from um, adaptation. 
um, because he's playing Nick Cage. Uh, okay. He plays sort of an, yeah. an earlier Nick Cage and maybe also um, Wild at Heart from uh, David Lynch. David Lynch, way yeah. Way back when. I think the the sort of the alter ego for Nick Cage in this film is an earlier Nick Cage, but an acting Nick Cage. Um, so it's interesting because he's sort of playing two things. He's playing uh, himself and then also sort of an earlier character or kind of an amalgamation of a couple of earlier characters. Um, Nick's in career limbo. He doesn't uh, get the job that he really wants. Um, has a terrible relationship with his daughter, who is not his real daughter. Um, they go to therapy together. It's a pretty funny scene. Um, he drinks a lot. He has to take a t- job. So I guess sort of the end of the act one is that he ends up having to take this job, going to a party in Mallorca at this really uber rich guy's compound. Um, and his name's Javier. And they make a, some many jokes about him pronunciation you know, the pronunciation of his name <laughs> Javi and super rich but he also might be related to organized crime or a mobster himself but he also has a screenplay and he wants Nick to read it and he wants to make the film with Nick Cage um, he's a massive Nick Cage fan um, and he may have kidnapped the daughter of a politician um, so the CIA, I guess, makes contact with Nick because they know he's there and they want him to spy on, um, Javi and find the girl. Uh, one early connection with John Malkovich is the fact that in Javier's, uh, compound, there's this one Nick Cage sort of lair. It's a monument to all things Nick Cage. He's collected all these things from Nick Cage. And we see it when you talk about being John Malkovich, we'll see a similar moment where someone has a uh, sort of an homage to uh, uh, John Malkovich in his house. So um, they definitely are working kind of on the same plane here, these two films. Um, There's a bromance that ensues. Javi and Nick really ended up hitting it off, and they're having a great time together, and they start writing a new screenplay together. And Nick Cage sort of extends this project in order to spend more time um, casing out the situation for the CIA. So he's using this opportunity to hang out at this compound in Mallorca um, to actually get a little deeper into the the Javier uh, case. Um, I guess they start working against each other. They nearly kill each other, of course, because uh, they're both sort of escaping the real boss, who's Javi's cousin. Right. And uh, they sort of end up not only saving the politician's daughter, but also Nick's daughter, who's flown over with Nick's ex-wife, again, not his real ex-wife, uh, to check on him. And I, I, I got a little confused early on because it, Nick's playing himself, his real self, I guess, but it's not an actual real daughter or a real ex-wife. No, the, the daughter, interestingly, I had to look this up, is, yeah. is the real daughter of Kate Beckinsale and Michael Sheen. Yes. So she is a, a different showbiz daughter, but yeah. not his showbiz daughter. Yes. Uh, and then their real lives sort out. Javi's and uh, Nick Cage's, I guess, their real lives in the film, um, by their writing together. And it, their, their relationship is actually really nice. It's they, they sort of they really buddy out. They really find a lot of things in common. And um, they do write this film. And then the, to a certain extent, the film that they're writing informs... Uh, the Nick Cage film, The Unbearable um, Weight of Massive we're Talent. watching, yeah. Or vice versa. I mean, they kind of, there's a nice little trick there, I think. Um, my biggest complaint is that it, it lacks some of the Charlie Kaufman cleverness. It's sort of in that genre, on that plane, but it ends up sort of being um, a Nick Cage film. It ultimately just sort of becomes <laughs> the kind of Nick Cage film that we're parodying. It becomes the, the thing place. it hates. Yeah. And I don't know how like self-reflective all that was or if that's the whole point of the film. Um, but as I sort of alluded to earlier, most of the Nick Cage's films of the last 10 or 15 years, for me, they're not really entertaining and they're not that good. Um, so I don't know why you would go to all this trouble of parodying the film and then <laughs> and have the parody end up sort of taking over the film and it just becomes another one. Um, it gets kind of violent too. The body count kind of rises, even though this is sort of like an innocent comedy picture, um, and as I said, the, I loved the trailer. I thought this was going to be a great film, and it just doesn't quite hit the premise the way I was expecting it to. Um, it's definitely entertaining. I laughed a few times. There's, a, I think, a wonderful scene where he has to play an Italian mobster, and his wife just happens to be a former makeup artist, and he gets into this <laughs> costume, and he inhabits that role beautifully. It's quite funny. Um, 
but that's it's a, at the same time I think that's when the whole film is kind of falling apart on another level. So it's it's getting great in terms of Nick Cage not being Nick Cage for a little while and playing another character, but then uh, the film is at that point it's just kind of falling apart, and then um, it actually ends up sort of doing exactly. I think that's like a little wink wink moment where the last scene is actually. Um, God, who is in it? It's um, Demi Moore, right? Demi Moore plays Yeah, his it is wife. Demi Moore. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so it ends up on this action scene, which is actually them finally filming the uh, the the script that he'd written with Javi, and they even um, have an opening night premiere in there. Um, so I guess, uh, again, I, I just did, I don't feel like it really hit the, the, so the Charlie Kaufman bars that I think it was going for. I'm not really sure what they were trying to do exactly, but... Um, after having seen Pig recently, I thought, boy, he's, he, he was and he is a good actor. He can do some great things. But um, this is not a fantastic film. Um, it's just kind of an average. It was nothing of, you know, nothing terribly offensive. But I think it just missed potential. And I, th- I think the scenes that I liked the most were the, the twins, the twins uh, scenes where he's, you know, playing both a younger self, I so guess. The yeah, he speaks guy. to a younger version yeah. of himself, kind of CGI'd in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's almost like Nick Cage is wrestling with his past and sort of dismissing it when I think that character could have driven it more. I think he shows up, the Nick Cage twin character shows up maybe five times or something like that. Mm. And I actually think that those are some of the more interesting things because he's acting against himself in those scenes and, um, it's kind of a lively character, of course. Um, but it turns out it's just part of his imagination. So he gives himself a big kiss, doesn't he? Which is kind of it's one of the kind of big gags in the film. Yeah, it's interesting. You're saying that you felt like it ended on a bit of a wink, wink. Because I, I felt like the whole movie was an enormous wink, yeah. wink. I wrote here in my notes that it was being like like being hit over the head with a rock with irony written on it in felt tip pen, <laughs> <laughs> while somebody plays Alanis Morissette in the background. I mean, it's it's yes, yeah, this well is irony, irony the movie. Yeah. Um, but it, I think this film kind of tries to have its cake and eat it, mm. which um, which is one of those idioms that's always annoying. I don't understand why. What's what's with the having the cake and the and the eating and having is the same thing, isn't it? I wish people said keep its cake and eat it. Those are two different things. Having a cake and eating it is the same thing. I'm but- so glad you brought that up. If I can interject for a moment, because I think it's <laughs> actually supposed to be that you can eat your cake and have it too. Oh, so it's not you can't you, you of course you can have it for a little while, look at it, eat it, it's gone. But you can't eat it and then you can't have eat it. it. So and people then have, have it said afterwards. The word <gasps> order is wrong, and it makes a complete difference. I feel like scales have been lifted off my eyes. Isn't that That's great? amazing. Yeah. So <laughs> I knew there was a reason we were doing this podcast. Now I've learned something. This, <laughs> Certainly the, not um, learning anything about film, but uh. <laughs> this I've, I've written here that it's um in my in my little notes here. This is the most slavishly hero's journey film I have seen in years but I think that is deliberate I think they've really really deliberately perfectly hit all those hero's journey moments moment by moment I check my watch and um the the inciting incident of him losing the job happens at 10 minutes it happens oh. on page 10 okay just the page that all the the yep. film writing schools will tell you you need to have your inciting incident on you know there's there's a call to an adventure yep. um he refuses the call mm-hmm. um he has uh, tests allies and enemies he mm-hmm. goes into the innermost cave yeah and when it comes to the final 30 minutes of the film the two characters um literally say uh, we need to sort out the third act oh yeah Yep. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's absolutely lifted, um, directly out of the screenwriting book as the hero's journey. But Definitely. I think, I think they're doing that deliberately. Yeah. Um, it's another it, wink because wink, they're yeah. kind of deliberately writing something which is, you know, uh, ironically formulaic yeah. and trying to use this pattern to, to, to ladle an extra layer of irony on top of the film. And I think because of this, it had, the film has this kind of perfect platonic shape. Because it so closely adheres to the the, the 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 classic hero's journey twelve point structure, and because of this this shape, I find it a little bit difficult to criticise. I feel mm. like strangely, this film has actually sort of achieved everything it set out to achieve. Yeah, maybe it hasn't done it particularly subtly, and I don't think it's quite as clever as the film likes to think it is. But there, I found it actually you know, a reasonably entertaining watch because it hits all the notes in all the right moments. Yeah. You know, in an almost mechanical way. Um, the early part of the film where there's um, some uncertainty about whether Javi is um, really 
an innocent olive grove farmer with mm. a lot of money or whether he's actually a crime boss. And you have a little bit of a will he, won't he, is he, isn't he? Um, and uh, that made me uh, reminded a little bit of that David Fincher film, The Game. Have you seen that? I haven't. That's a, it's um, a David Mamet script. Is that right? I, it might be. It's, it's, um, it's a Michael Douglas and Sean in Penn, a film yeah. as, as an incredibly rich guy who's so yeah. bored of life yeah. that um, uh, his brother sets him up with this game where he, he will firmly believe that his life is in danger, but actually it's just all a very elaborate theatrical ruse. And I wonder whether they were going down that path um, where uh, a lot of the characters, the CIA characters and the the cousin who or the brother who's like the, the real crime kingpin they all seem so cartoonish and so difficult yeah. to believe that i was thinking maybe these are actually going to also be yeah. actors and i wonder whether the film is going to play that card but it doesn't actually no it, it sort of it pretty much sticks to its guns yeah um any standout scenes there are some i mean I, I, again i liked some of the just the buddy stuff i think that was the strongest stuff in the film for me so there's what is there a moment where they take mushrooms by accident or something like that or lsd <laughs> it's, it's lsd isn't it yes they're driving i mean just some of that silliness um which again doesn't really I mean i guess it was to try and explore the paranoia that he was feeling because he's kind of getting drawn into this whole cia thing and spying on his buddy but um i don't know that it furthered the story too much but i think a couple of those moments were the standouts for me i mean the, i i've seen you know more Nick Cage films than I realized because I kept ticking mm. off in my mind all the scenes that I recognized, oh, like yeah. the, the face-off references. Oh. You know, by they cleverly use his reflection to make him swap faces with himself. Yeah, and there's there's a scene when they're in the shot in the, in the car and um, Javi and, and Nick Cage swap shoes instead of swapping faces. Yes, uh, so they, you know, they're constantly referring to this. And there's a scene um, in The Rock. Uh, at the end, Nick Cage has to dramatically inject himself with the antidote to the nerve poison to save his own life. Yeah. And he has to you know, inject himself not very well in this. And it, yes. so they're, they're constantly ticking off references to other Nick Cage films. If you're a big fan. Yeah. Um, I know there are, there are plenty of people who do really enjoy Nick Cage. Then you know, this film you know, absolutely plays all its cards. And there's a lot of entertainment to be had from that. Uh, great. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought up Face Off because I did love that film. And that is an, an example of where two actors really had a great time playing each other. <laughs> oh, my God. So good. And they were I think they were going beyond the boundaries of the film they were making. They were really sort of playing each other in in real life. And uh, Travolta <laughs> and, and Cage are great there. Uh, I'm also I, I love your your insights on uh, the hero's journey because you're absolutely right. I mean, it even starts with the. Uh, He's talking to a director, I don't know, or the writer of the film that he doesn't get the part for, and uh, you know, it just starts out as a film within a film, maybe even within yeah. a film. I don't know. And I think uh, I'm just happy that at least someone does their homework for each one of these podcasts. It's usually you. <laughs> Doing a great job. Yeah, I think that's absolutely. It's just, just wink, 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 wink. And I think, but I think what suffers is there's, and I always do this. I mean, I use the hero's journey. I think a lot of writers do. I don't dwell on it though. I think you've got to break from it in order to do something original. So nothing felt original about it as a result and you think like charlie kaufman again if he might have a hero's journey you know buried into his stories but they become so filled with his unique and original touches that you yeah, don't it's not on the surface it. if it's that yeah. obvious then it's, it's hero's journey done poorly i think but and one one interesting thing about, thing about this hero's journey when you're talking about going into like the inner the inner circle or the lair it's actually nick cage looking at Nick Cage in this uh, this uh, warship room, you know, that, that Javi has for him with his guns from things and posters and signed pieces and all this memorabilia from the career of Nick Cage. It's it's bizarre. It's like the mind getting inside the mind. And we're going to see yeah. that, I think, in John Malkovich, too. We're going to see it, which is also brilliantly done. So I guess I think that scene to me is also a standout scene because uh, it's going well against expectations. He's expecting to find the girl in there in some awful, you know, hostage situation. Instead, he sees his own, like, being held hostage <laughs> in this this Spanish gangster's uh, uh, castle. So uh, that's another standout scene for sure. I think that the big problem I have with, like, such heavy irony in a film, I love irony. Irony is great, isn't mm. it? We love irony. Yeah. It's, you know, it's like, especially when you're in Britain, irony is 90% of the national personality. Exactly, but, yeah. Uh, the, the worry is that once you have too much irony, it comes at a price. And the, the price, I think, is the price of any real emotional engagement. Mm. So the whole film is so arch yeah. that at the end... Nick Cage, the character, Nick Cage, the actor, has a kind of emotional redemption. And 
you know, his failing relationship with his daughter and his spiky relationship with his ex-wife are somehow saved. And he, he has a transformation and he learns something and he's able to salvage something of his relationship with his daughter. But the fact that there's been so much goddamn winking for the previous 106 minutes means that then that I think any attempt at a proper emotional payoff you know, is kind of lost. Um, so it ends up feeling you know, not very sincere. Um, after a while, the jokes become the sole point of the whole story. Mm. Um, and I don't think you can get away with you know, any kind of real emotional notes when you've been winking so hard. There, tell you what, there is one thing that I would have changed, okay. um, I think. So it, it does follow this very slavish hero's journey um, shape. Um, and there's the moment that you mentioned specifically at the end when you have this um, this death trap moment. Did we mm. talk about? Do you know? Have you, did you do you remember the film Death Trap, which was Michael Caine and Christopher Reeve from like 1982, something like that? Yes, Reeve um, is a, he's a writer and he's writing. Yeah, a and, and uh, it's uh, kind of based on an Ira Levin uh, play, yeah. I think, or an yeah. Ira, Le yeah. Ira Levin novel. And um, at the very end. All the characters in the film are fighting over who's going to get the gun or who's going to who's going to make it out of the house alive. And then you cut to the climax of the play of the film and um, oh, you have yeah. the reveal of who is the character who finally survived the final ordeal. They're the ones who wrote this play, which has become a Broadway hit. Mm -hmm. This film does the same thing yeah. that you have this big emotional climax, which then morphs into the film of the story that we've just seen that's right um, and so it uses that to, to to kind of to take one step at one step removed from the engagement of the the climax and and at that moment cage's wife originally played by sharon horgan is now suddenly replaced by demi moore yeah and i was i was saying if you're gonna have demi moore appear in this film why not go big and have demi moore appear as demi moore Mm. As another guest at the party, who also may be working for the CIA, I would have I would have brought her in sure. and um, let the audience enjoy that as a bit of a surprise. The film isn't called The Unbearable Weight of the Massive Talent of Nick Cage, but it probably should be. And Nick Cage is like front and centre. Yeah. So you know exactly what you're getting when you look at the poster, and to have another '90s film star turn up and do like an extra kind of ironic cameo actually might have been an ex the extra bit of fun that the film is missing. That's what I would have done. If you yeah. paid Demi more to turn up for a day, get her for a week and get her to be, mm -hmm. be in some more scenes. Good point. Yeah. It's not going to cost a whole lot more to get her there for the whole week, probably. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what's, what's poor Demi Moore doing these days? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Overall, though, it's 107 minutes. It's brisk, sometimes maybe a little bit too brisk, um, enjoyable. I did laugh a few times. I actually found it reasonably entertaining. Yeah. I, I wouldn't say I had a bad time watching this film. I think you've made me think a couple things because I think there there's a lot of a uh, uh, a gun play leading up to that scene as well. There is like um, you know this one gun that a couple of people try to get at one point or another. So it's it's awfully, like pulling right off of that play as well. Um, and it's it almost the way you've talked about it. It makes me feel like this is a this is a film that needs like a list of the sources that it's cited. You know, it's otherwise it's plagiarism because it's <laughs> taken so many other Nick Cage films. <laughs> You might as well just cite the sources and uh, put that in the credits somehow, because um, it does seem to like gather a lot of its material from other places. Yeah. When does homage become plagiarism? Mm -hmm. You're right. Good point. Yeah, yeah absolutely. But then uh, all the best artists steal, I suppose. That's correct. That was John Lennon. Who um, said that. And I should correct myself right away. The game was not written by uh, David Mamet, but by John Bracancato and Michael Ferris. So I was confusing okay. it with another film, clearly. Um, I haven't seen the game for a long time. I might go back and see it. Actually, oh, I wonder what that looks like these days. Maybe we should put that on the. Don't yeah, ruin the surprise. Put it on the list. Our listeners, maybe list. that'll come up. Right, let's have a break. Yeah, let's do it. Um, let's let's fold away the massive hammer of irony for a few, yes. few seconds, and then we're going to bring it back out again uh, after the break and talk about being John Malkovich. We're back um, to talk about being John Malkovich from 1999. Seems funny to talk about that as being 
a historical film, but actually that's 23 years ago now, isn't it? So Being John Malkovich, the debut of Spike Jones, mm. um, originally came up through the skateboarding scene. Uh, so he made skateboarding videos, he made uh, music videos, um, he married Sophia Coppola, and Charlie Kaufman, the writer of Being John Malkovich, um, spent a long time trying to get this picture made. He gave the script to Francis Ford Coppola, who then gave it to his daughter's husband, um, in apparently 1997 and they struggled and struggled and eventually got it made in 1999. Mm. So it's, uh, I'm trying to think how to describe this film to someone who has never seen it. The best description is the three words of the title. It's one of those wonderful movies that kind of tells you what it is mm. in those three words of the title. Uh, John Cusack is in it with uh, Cameron Diaz, uh, Catherine Keener, John Malkovich, great cast for a late 90s picture. Um, John Cusack is Craig, who is a failed puppeteer, performing on street corners and getting punched by passers-by for his uh, for his troubles. Uh, he lives with his wife, uh, Lottie Cameron Diaz, who like works in a pet shop and he has, she has a menagerie of pets in their tiny apartment. And it's very kind of claustrophobic and strange. Um, she tells him, honey, you need to get a job. Uh, so Craig gets a job at Leicester Corps filing in this um, bizarre half height office uh, on the floor seven and a half there yeah, he falls in love with Maxine who's uh, Catherine Keener um, and he discovers a portal behind a filing cabinet that leads uh, down a tunnel and at the end of the tunnel you get to spend 15 minutes in John Malkovich's head um, that's the thing that everybody remembers about this movie and there are many other layers which I'd kind of forgotten about but that's that's it's um such a striking image and it's so well summarized by the title that no wonder mm. that's what everybody takes takes away from the film so um so Maxine and Craig quickly they monetize this portal that they found they're charging people 200 bucks a pop to spend 15 minutes inside John Malkovich's head um but Lottie Craig's wife really loves it she goes in again and again um, and by occupying John Malkovich's head, by kind of trying on the John Malkovich suit, she kind of discovers her own sort of trans identity. It's something that people didn't really talk about in 1999, mm. I think. Um, certainly not something that I was aware of. Um, something which seems considerably more contemporary uh, these days. So Maxine falls in love with Lottie, but only when she is wearing the John Malkovich suit. And... Um, Craig becomes extremely jealous. Uh, he manages to uh, convince Maxine that he is Lottie when he is really the one inside John Malkovich, um, which is a kind of you know, remarkable body swap betrayal. And then Craig figures out how to take over John Malkovich's body permanently rather than just for 15 minutes at a time. We flash forward to nine months later and uh, Craig has been living in John Malkovich's body full time. Uh, John Malkovich is an observer of his own life, unable to do anything. Um, and uh, the John Malkovich that we see has now become a successful puppeteer, uh, just like Craig. Um, but there is a subplot that uh, Lester, who runs Lester Corp, the place where the portal is, the, the company where uh, Craig got his job, um, has actually been using the portal to prolong his life. Um, and so at the end of the movie, uh, Lester persuades Craig to get out of Malkovich's head. Um, Lester enters Malkovich's head to then live his immortal life uh, next stage inside John Malkovich. And Craig, chasing after him, ends up trapped uh, inside the body of uh, Maxine and Lottie's daughter. Um, at, uh, so later on in the film, we see eight years later, um, Craig is is uh, trapped inside uh, the mind of an eight year old girl, able only to watch, not able to participate while he watches his ex-wife and his um, sometime love interest live a happy life together. Um, utterly mad, shockingly mad, I think, for a mainstream film in 1999. Do you remember seeing it the first time round? I did. Saw it in a big theatre, proper proper way to see it. So big screen, a lot of people in a gorgeous old theatre. And uh, I remember liking it a lot, but I never went back to watch it again on 
boy VHS or DVD or any of those things that we used to use. Um, so I was very happy to find it um, and watch it again for the pod. And I liked it a lot. But I mean, I, same thing, just strange characters, strange dialogue. Loved it. I love that kind of stuff because it's just, it's the opposite of the film we just talked about in the sense that it's <laughs> very original. It's creative. Absolutely. It's yeah. So, um, yeah. I think the thing that surprised me going back to it, so there's so many pivotal bits of the movie that I've just completely forgotten about. Mm. I'd forgotten that Craig, that um, John Cusack's character is a puppeteer, but that's actually yeah. kind of fundamental to the story. It is, and there's a yeah. bunch of really memorable scenes that I've completely forgotten about. There's Towards the end of the movie, um, Karen Diaz and Catherine Keener have this crazy chase through Malkovich's subconscious with the camera moving all over the place and the point of view changing and uh, the, the, the direction of gravity changing. Um, it reminds me a little bit. I don't know whether you've seen Where the Wild Things Are. Which is, yeah, another Spike Jones film. Yes, yeah. it's, it's, I think it's his most recent film. It really kind of has that tone, actually. Mm. Um, and then there's another kind of great um, uh, pivotal scene, the kind of the scene which everybody probably remembers, which is the, the scene where Malkovich discovers that these uh, two strange characters are selling 15 minutes of time inside his head. Mm-hmm. So he forces them to let him go down the tunnel and spend 15 minutes inside his own head. Yeah. Um, Amazing. You know, again, that's, yeah, it's a, it's a really kind of um, memorable, <laughs> but utterly kind of bizarre uh, film uh, scene. I do remember uh, watching that this time round. It did make me think, what are the rules about going inside Malkovich's head? Because um, I did feel a little bit like the scene where he enters his own head doesn't seem to obey the same rules as when everybody else goes inside his head. Um so I, you know, I wasn't yeah. entirely sure whether they figured out what the rules were or yeah. whether it's just that new digital technology meant that they could put John Malkovich's head on many, many different actors. Yes. So they went for it. And, yeah. And, you know, uh, it it yeah. makes this kind of, yeah, it's kind of funny, amusing, but the mumbo jumbo doesn't add up. But I, I <laughs> guess I viewed it as um, a, like a feedback loop. It's like there's, ah. there's some sort of problem with the system when you do that. You really can't do it um, so that he just ends up seeing himself again and again. Um, and it's a, a brilliant scene. I love it. I love it. You know, the only word of dialogue is Malkovich. And um, <laughs> there are, by the end of it, hundreds of John Malkoviches in the in the scene. Um, I think it's brilliant. And I, 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 that's the way I justify it anyway, is that it just really wouldn't work to go into your own head and see the world. You just see yourself, I guess. So that's how I understood it. I, I yeah. went with it. There's some other things that, that I still think about, like, because Craig... The Cusack character doesn't go in with Lester and his whole gang. I, I guess I didn't understand why an entire group of people could go into John Malkovich. <laughs> no, there. Yeah. So that was hard for me. And then it seems like because John Malkovich is embodied by Craig at the very end of the film. So you're looking at Malkovich and Craig has somehow gotten in there as well, as, as I understood it. So not only are all the old people in there, but Craig's in there too. And he seems to have more control than anyone else because he's got the puppeteering skills and he's learned Malkovich. Right. Yeah. Way. So he's in there too, and that you know that's not shown explicitly in the film. Um, as you said, he's left off in the sort of mumbo jumbos, but he must somehow get into the Malkovich body and sort of really take control, even though there are what twenty or thirty other people in there as well. So it's one of those things where you just have to. But this is this is the kind of suspension of disbelief that I can do. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I will go with this. Um, I won't go with, you know, like a, a, an actor falling from a helicopter, getting shot and then walking 10 miles, then getting <laughs> knifed again and then in, ending up at the end of the film saving people and surviving. I mean, I, I don't want to do that. I will do this. I will definitely accept that kind of level of disbelief or this brand of disbelief. So I was it fine. Does, it show, shows great skill, actually, I think, to weave this tale and to so successfully take the audience along with you. Yeah. Um, it's, it's interesting how... Um, Spike Jones had a really interesting career, mm. um, starting out with those handheld um, skateboard movies. Yeah. Um, you can still see them on on um, on YouTube, actually, some of his early skateboard movies. And there's something about that style and his early pop videos. I think he shot like Sabotage, that famous oh, yeah. Beastie Boys yep. um, video and like the Fat Boy Slim video of... Uh, uh, kind of people dancing in the shopping mall. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something about that kind of shaky cam, handheld style, which informs the, um, the the way that a lot of the scenes in Bing John Malkovich are shot. And I think, I don't know whether part of it is that the shaky cam gives uh, the, the film a verite kind of feel, but um, I think it's, it's, it's um, entirely absorbing. 
there is no moment in this film, as you rightly point out, there's no moment where I, I have trouble suspending my disbelief. Yeah. I'm utterly in the moment all the way through. It's very skillful when you consider how far out on a limb the story goes. Yeah. There's some great cameos in this film. Charlie Sheen turns up um, gamefully um, being a kind of... Uh, Charlie Sheen caricature and especially later on in the film he turns up as an older balder Charlie Sheen doing a kind of a comedy turn which is great to watch Brad Pitt turns up for like for just like a, a fraction of a second I had I had to look this up David Fincher is oh. um, playing one of the characters in the the mockumentary about Malkovich's oh. puppeteering yeah. um, career so he he appears as a an LA Times critic. Oh. Uh, there's a whole bunch of really interesting yeah. cameos. There's uh, all sorts of interesting little moments. Um, in a way, this film suffers slightly from having too many ideas. I think um, there are, especially early on in the film, there there are moments when, to me, it feels almost like Charlie Kaufman was writing a series of of Saturday Night Live skits. So, like, you know, it feels like, you know, there should be a skit about rival puppeteers. Yes. And then, you know, there'll be a skit about, you know, a company that lives on the seven and a half floor of a building because mm-hmm. we have low overheads. Yep. You know, and I felt like some of these ideas, they didn't quite gel in with the rest of the film. Um, yeah. You know, they were entertaining. They were fun. Yeah. And certainly memorable. And I'm glad they were there. But I don't think they quite, um, I think they you could have made the whole film without having that seven and a half floor gag. Yeah. And nobody would have missed it. It's not integral. It's just, you know, a, a, a cute, funny gag. Yes. And in it, fact, even some of the, some of the ideas um, early on, um, Mr. Lester, the guy who runs the company, who is also hoping to use Malkovich's head as a vessel for his future life. Um, he's kind of like this kind of bizarre comedy character who believes that he's got a speech impediment even though he hasn't and he regales Craig with his kind of lengthy detailed sex fantasies and which is entirely at odds with the character that Lester is in the in the in the last bit of the film yeah um it, yeah, there's enough going on that I think it's easy for the audience to to forget those little details and just go along with the ride but it's not entirely consistent yeah but, I and I do have a thought on that um, yeah. And I think it has to do with exposition. I think for the for the Lester character, he's still talking like some 20 or 30-year-old self that he truly is. So it, it's, I, I think it's inelegantly done, but I understand why they're doing it. It's to show that the, the, he's just occupying that Lester body right now. There's something in there, um, someone who's perhaps, ah. um, uh, I don't know, a bit more... Um, uh, debaucherous and thinking of his younger self and and you sort of get the residue of that earlier personality that's just in an older vessel and uh overall i think in terms of like exposition um you know exposition of course we we, we talk about it as an enemy as writers um and that it's it's so often very boring so when he goes back and explains why there's a seventh and a half floor i think it's kind of a certain i'm gonna have fun with it i'm gonna tell you a good story it might not be <laughs> worth it it's gonna take up some space in a film and on the page but I'm going to do it and it's going to be pretty funny. So I, I, those scenes, again, they bring a smile to my face. And with Spike Jones, they're done really efficiently. And I think um, that does happen often in Charlie Kaufman, where he just gets on these detours that don't seem like they're um, doing much for the film and pushing it forward, but they are entertaining. I mean, and I would say that his most recent film does it way too much. And I was just completely lost in it. Um, But in this film, um, I think it worked really well, and it sort of sets up the, the big exposition, which comes in the middle of the film, and it's they're trying to solve some problems, I think. There's this long, um, as you said, it's sort of a documentary within the film on why did John Malkovich stopped acting and got into puppetry, and <laughs> um, and then it's sort of, it's, an, it's a vehicle to get the whole timeline at first eight, eight months forward, I guess, and it's, it's way too much right, to yeah. happen in eight months. I mean, he has a baby, he changes his careers, he's got this, you know, expose <laughs> on his talent and in magazines and this documentary is being done about all he's done in the last eight months to become the best puppeteer in the world. <laughs> um, it's completely unrealistic. Again, I'm going to buy it. I believe it. Um, but it is, it's, it's, it's an interesting bit of exposition that again, I don't know you need to do that in the film, but it, they pull it off. There's a lot of like, there's sort of a citizen Kane homage going on there as well. Right. It felt very much like that, like the old, um, uh, newsreels before the old movies. Um, yeah. There's a lot going on and they get away with it. And I got to say, that's interesting exposition. It's not boring, which is, you know, most exposition is just a sort of, you go back and learn something about a character that explains something that's going on in the present 
day of the film, I, you know, I, most of that I hate. I like I like stories that are kind of either really lean and can get away without much exposition at all, or something like this, which is just having fun with exposition. Yeah, it is actually, isn't it? Going back to uh, the Nick Cage film, yeah, Javi um, and Nick, uh, when they're having their their struggles over trying to write their screenplay together, which Nick Cage is prolonging while he does some spying for the CIA, yeah. they ask each other that kind of that hoary old but tremendously important question. What's it about? Yeah. They, they they literally ask, but yeah, but what's it about? And I always end up asking myself, knowing that I weren't going to talk about these films, I ask myself, what's it about? And it feels to me like being John Malkovich should be about empathy. Mm-hmm. That if you can spend fifteen minutes in someone else's shoes, quite literally, then yeah, that means yeah, that means uh, that's that's that, that's a, a byword for empathy. There's a um, there's a, what's a famous joke. Um, uh, if you don't like someone, walk a mile in their shoes. Sure. And then if you still don't like them, you'll be a mile away from them and you'll have their shoes. <laughs> <laughs> which, is, which is a Stephen Wright gag, like uh, not mine. Yeah. But, um, but the, so, so it feels like being John Malkovich should be a film about empathy. Yeah. And yet this experience of spending 15 minutes inside John Malkovich's head um, engenders no empathy from any of the characters. Nobody in the movie says, oh, well, poor John Malkovich yeah. or... I wonder how Malkovich is coping with this or no, he's you're utterly just a piece of meat to be used. Yes. No one has any sympathy for him. No one particularly has any empathy for each other even. No. Um, uh, so I, I, I don't know whether they uh, tickle us with the notion that this film could be about empathy and then just slam it in our face um, or whether it's just that the, the decision was made, well, let's not develop this, this theme in the direction that it should you know, that it should go in. Yeah, I think, for me, I think it borders more on Andy Warhol's 15 minutes, the 15 oh, minutes of fame yes. that he thought everyone should have. So regardless of your, regardless of anyone else's feelings, you're out there to get your 15 minutes of fame and feel what it's like to be famous and a superstar for, for that you time. You get your 15 minutes of fame, but it's somebody else's fame. Yeah, exactly. 15 and I think, they're, I, think that's what, I think that's why he probably settled on 15 minutes because... Um, and John Malkovich was probably a bit more popular when this film came out. I mean, he, it, he's an interesting choice as a, as a superstar to, to be inside the head of. But um, I mean, it works for the film, I think. Um, but I think that's what it's I think that's why he chose 15 minutes. And I think that's why there's very little empathy, because you think in, in fame, you're not looking for empathy. You're looking for more notoriety, I guess. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, and one of the lines in their advertisements is, have you ever wanted to be someone else? Right. I mean, that's how Maxine oh, and yeah. Craig... Um, advertise it, just getting into some other um, body and getting away from your own life. Which ironically for John Malkovich, when he does get into um, himself, he, he he just gets no life whatsoever. He's not having <laughs> another life at all. He's just getting too much of his own life. Um, I had a couple thoughts about um, the, yeah. the puppetry I thought was super cinematic. I mean, I think yeah. it was beautiful. It was beautiful and it seemed... Uh, uh, just surreally sur- cinematic. I thought it was fantastic. Um, so I really enjoyed that. And I think, you know, again, that's a great choice because it's really about you're learning how to control someone else's body. And that's what a puppeteer does is controls the body. So it was a great choice to make John Cusack's character a puppeteer and really use it. So that was really resourceful, I thought. I think you were talking about, I think it happens when Lottie and Maxine are doing that run through his Malkovich's self um Consciousness. Yeah, the there was a moment that I didn't think was necessary backstory. It was really weird. So I should go back and correct yeah. what I said on that front. Because um, they have this monkey, Elijah. Is that right? Yes. Um, and he, yes. they go into it's one a, of his memories. as a pet monkey. Yeah. It's a, it's a memory of his being taken from his mother or something like that. Yes. It's this crazy dream that Elijah has because he's in the consciousness loop at some point. And that was a moment I, that I thought, Okay, don't I couldn't. That was the one moment I couldn't really add into the rest of the film because I mean there is this sort of separation situation, and maybe that's like Craig is about to feel that because he's going to be separated because Maxine's daughter, which is really we think might be we don't know if it's Lottie's daughter or if it's Craig's daughter because they both um, had intercourse with Maxine when they were in John Malkovich's body <laughs> or mine. I mean, it's just it gets very uh, and I, that was the only thing I could think of. I just that that was a set, uh, one of those scenes it's kind of a classic Kaufman thing where okay it's really weird it's kind of funny but that that that's the thing that stood out to me that made no sense whatsoever um <laughs> I, I interpreted that so I think I think that happens when the, the chimp um is going to untie 
Cameron Diaz when she's tied up in the cage. Oh, that's right. So she's been put in a cage. Yes. And then the the chimp has this kind of because uh, all the way through there's this been this running gag that Cameron Diaz is is uh, is very confident that the uh, that the chimp has medical problems that's because right. of some repressed trauma. There and you this go. is you know presented as just like a silly gag. How kind of chimp have repressed trauma? You know, you're you're too empathic with these animals. Wow. And then you yeah. get the reveal. Oh no, actually, you know, he does have, he does remember the trauma of being caught and seeing his his parents being caught yes. in, in the jungle. Um, so I think I th- I think that's, that's the angle they're going for on that. Yeah, which could... again is you know it's it's like something about sort of empathy and memory and being inside somebody else's head. Yeah. But uh, but because it's a chimp, actually, it's you know it's rather more straightforward yeah. and it gives him a bit of motivation to untie her her wrists and then move the plot forward. Brilliant. Good on you. Thank you so much. We'll see now. I love it again. That's a great moment. Yeah. <laughs> I'll buy that one too. Um, if I have any if I have any criticism of this film. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, and I'm very prepared to be told I am wrong. Um, it felt to me like a, a, a really organic spiraling tale. Um, everything seemed to lead from one step to another very naturally mm. um, up until the point um, you know, which he must be anticipating from very early on in the film. Um, the point where Malkovich goes inside Malkovich's own head mm-hmm. because um you know, when you talk about the idea, oh, you, you get to spend 15 minutes inside John Malkovich's head and then somebody else tries it and they get a slightly different experience and someone else tries it. And the idea that occurs to you is, oh, what happens when he does it himself? Mm. And so that feels like a natural destination. Um, and then it's only you know, a little while after that um, that we then swing into the third act. And for me, the third act of this film feels slightly inorganic. It feels to me like that the step that it takes from... Um, Craig being able to puppeteer his way into John Malkovich's life full time to there then being you know, a, a large organized conspiracy of elderly people who plan to occupy John Malkovich's head you know, on midnight on his 44th birthday. It, I must say, I felt like a sudden slight jarring shift of story and tone. I wonder whether you know, originally... You know, the, the original story or the original script actually kind of had a, a different briefer third act that maybe I could buy Craig um, living long term in Malkovich's head and there being some kind of bittersweet victory over that. Um, but this kind of um, this sort of extra story element of there being a whole party of elderly people who are going to live inside Malkovich um, just feels slightly unnatural to me. I, I'd be interested to read earlier versions of yeah. this movie uh, or see what the, the initial script pitch was like and to find out whether you know, that idea was early or whether that idea was late because it strikes me that that was probably quite a late idea in the development of the film and I'm not sure it completely fits in with the rest. Yeah, and good point. Just um, the fact that so many people occupying him and Craig being able to get in there as well. Um, and, it, you know, it's explained, I think, that uh, Lester was lonely when he occupied that one body, so he wanted to bring along all his friends. But it's true. I think that's a big ask. And it might have been done, yeah, a bit more elegantly. I, th- I think, As a result, I think the ending is kind of weird because <laughs> Craig is inside Malkovich with all these other people, but he's using the the brain to stock on Maxine through his own what might be his own daughter it's a really strange it's some daughter isn't it yeah yes. <laughs> and it, it's it's set up a little bit with some of the loves I think a couple of the love scenes when you know both uh, Lottie and Cusack want to make love to Maxine in, in Malkovich's body actually the first uh, Craig does it John Cusack's character does it without uh, Maxine knowing but it's this really right. strange bit of cinematic voyeurism <laughs> when you think about it, because you're, you're inside. Where you as the viewer are inside with another character inside John Malkovich's body and mind as he's making love to uh, Catherine Keener's character. It's a strange thing, strange bit of voyeurism, <laughs> and then it gets a little stranger. I think when you end up inside the body of his daughter, and if, if he's <laughs> is he always going to be there? I don't. I couldn't tell if there was a portal to get in there. Um, but they get in there, and, and you know what would ha- what what's that going to be like later on in life, where you're <laughs> occupying your daughter's consciousness through some of those moments we talked about when we talked about fast times yes. in this month? <laughs> <laughs> oh so my god! I, I was a I'm just realizing why there was never a sequel to this film. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. So I think, um, yeah, I think that 
things often fall apart in the third act, I guess. And I mean, at least here they're falling apart and they're still entertaining. Um, and uh, yeah, I they're think... still, yeah, still, yeah, joyfully off kilter. Yeah, exactly. Just, you know, off kilter at a different angle. And I think the, the theme came out early on in the film. I love it when um, Derek Martini, who's this celebrated uh, puppeteer and sort of an idol or an enemy for um, Craig's suffering puppeteer, he says, consciousness is a curse. And I felt like that was kind of the theme that came out pretty early on. He's watching a, an interview of Derek Martini, I think, who's this pompous puppeteer. And um, he says that at one point. I think that, you know, sort of comes back to what, you know, you're always asking that question, Jimmy. What's it about? What's it about? You've, you've asked What's me it about? that question a million times. Oh, yeah, man, you're right. So I think that might yeah. be it. It's just that what we get, what we, when we get what we wish for, sometimes we're very disappointed. And here it's like if you're asking for someone else's consciousness, there's a curse. And most of the characters end up... Um, sort of like tainted by the experience of being in there. They're either using John Malkovich and not showing any empathy, as you said earlier, or um, using his body to. I don't. You're the doctor, so you would know this. I don't know how Maxine <laughs> got impregnated, and if that's John Malkovich's baby or Lottie's baby, or uh, I, I think baby. I think I must have missed that lecture in medical school actually, because <laughs> yeah, I don't think I understand how that works either. I might ask an expert. Yeah, yeah you're right. So. Um, Famously, apparently, there was a conversation when the film was originally pitched, which was, um, uh, why can't it be um, uh, being Tom Cruise? Ooh. Do you think this film could have worked with any other actor um, as the John Malkovich character? I mean, could it have been um, could it have been being Jack Nicholson? Could it have been being Kevin Costner? I'm trying to think <laughs> who were the biggest stars in 1999. Yeah, I think they chose well with the. Uh, how about ooh, being Nick Cage? <laughs> Actually, you know what? That probably would have that worked. Would have saved us the film yeah. that we just watched. Yeah, um, I don't with, know. I think... with, the, with the kind of, with the Spike Jones Sophia Coppola um, connection. Yeah, you know, I, I bet he was. Right. I bet he was on the list of call as Good well. Point. Yeah. Oh, um, I think it worked really well with Malkovich, um, just because he's a wacky guy too, and he's an interesting person, very somewhat eccentric as a superstar, and. Uh, I think it works really well with him. Yeah, I can't imagine anyone else now, but uh, Nicolas Cage comes right to yeah. mind. Yep, yep. Yeah. He is he is definitely on number two on the podium. Yeah. Absolutely. So, uh, being John Malkovich, great picture. Still, still works. Still very entertaining. Yeah. Um, I think would still be entertaining even if you didn't know who John Malkovich was. Um, which yeah, and won't be very long before there will be an audience who you know, won't really particularly remember who John Malkovich was. Yeah. But yet the film will still have, I think, basically the same impact on them that it would on that it did on us in nineteen ninety nine. And and again, that piece of exposition in the middle helps you with that because even if the pe people don't know him, there's actually sort of a true to life bit of uh, exposition yeah. in the form of that documentary for people. So it, it does have an interesting shelf life as a result. Yep, yep, it preserves itself, doesn't it? Yeah. Great. I think these two films really, you know, they work together really well. And I only remembered a few minutes ago that um, John Malkovich and Nick Cage played um, together opposite each other in Con Air, didn't they? Yes. So this podcast is kind of like Con Air 2. <laughs> uh, that's, that's the way I'm thinking of it. That's what we should call it. Just OK, great. Well, this, <laughs> this has been the Two Real Cinema Club. This has been uh, good fun as always. Um, I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did, and I hope you will join us for the next one. Thanks and goodbye. Thanks, Jimmy. Goodbye, everybody. Mm -hmm.